Welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast today. This is episode number 307, and our guest is one of you, a listener of the show. I want to start with an introduction by reading something that this guest, Matt, had wrote to me. And he said, and I quote, Perseverance is what defines us as hunters. No matter the obstacle and no matter the difficulty, we will persevere. We will find a way. That's what makes us hunters. After all that happened in 2020 between a pandemic, two hurricanes, no one being able to join me for an out-of-state elk hunt, and dealing with type 1 diabetes, I still found a way. So don't wait until the next year or until things get better to pursue your dreams. There will always be an obstacle or a reason not to go. But you can never get that year, that memory, or that adventure back. Go be a hunter and persevere. Pursue your dreams, no matter what the obstacle. So that quote comes from our guest today, Matt. This is, as I mentioned, a listener story and a conversation that I thoroughly enjoyed. Before we dive into that, I just want to remind you guys that we are running the EXO Experience Contest. Throughout September, October, November, and into December, we want to hear about your hunts, see your photos, and to thank you for sharing those, we will enter you into some great giveaways. For September, the folks from Spartan Precision have given us the opportunity to give away several products from their lineup, gear that I personally use and like. To get the details on that contest and to enter, go to exomountgear.com forward slash experience or look for the link in the show description. Hit pause if you want to go check that out right now. Otherwise, let's dive right into this conversation with Matt. Well, Matt, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. Appreciate you joining us. And uh, where are you joining us from today? Uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana. All yeah, right. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, good, man. Yeah, you uh, essentially listened to the podcast and sent over a story from a hunt from this past fall um, that was not only successful, but <laughs> there's a lot that went into it. Um, and the, the giant theme is just persevering. Um, and yeah, there's a lots of twists and turns that we'll get into, but before we dive into that hunt, uh, just any sort of introduction background you want to share about yourself or hunting background, anything like that? Sure. Uh, you know, I grew up in East Texas, so hunting has been a part of my life, my whole life. I mean, we grew up in a hunting family. I started, my dad taking me on my first hunts when I was five years old. So whitetail has kind of been my predominant theme as far as my life whitetail and then feral hogs of course but texas over here is a little different than what people think of with texas most of the time you know hill country wide open tons of deer we usually uh we hunt in east texas river bottoms so it's you know pinewood forests and then hardwood bottoms off of the Sabine river so it's a little bit of a different challenge you're thinking of more sloughs with little pockets of deer not nearly the densities that you see out west so I grew up, you know, mostly just tree stand hunting, trying to find, you know, scrapes, hunting rut type stuff for whitetail. Mm. What, uh, I'm just curious, how late is the rut down there in Texas? So normally the rut in East Texas is around uh, the 1st of November. Oh, okay. So it's not that much later than a lot of other stuff then. Yeah. And then like, if you go to central Texas, it's usually around Thanksgiving and then South Texas, I think it's in December, somewhere around there. Okay. Yeah. That's more what I was expecting when I was thinking Texas, but Texas is so big, as you said, it varies even within the state then. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cool. 
Um, so when did you start like doing some Western hunt, elk hunts, stuff like that? Uh, so after I graduated college, you know, I'd always seen my dad probably all my life. He's grown up or I've grown up seeing him go to Colorado once a year with his friends. And they always went, you know, private land and they would kind of hunt how we hunted over here and tree stands and, you know, hunting trails and hopefully finding an elk along the way. And they were pretty successful that way. But for me, I had more of an allure of, you know, I wanted to go see the mountains. I wanted to go explore. I grew up more as an athlete. I played, you know, football, baseball, basketball. And I wanted, instead of just, you know, hunting tree stands like we do here, I wanted to kind of stretch my legs, explore and see different things. And that's kind of what drove me out West. And then of course, you know, wanting to hunt elk, wanting to hunt mule deer, those types of things. So when I graduated college, um, I guess it was, yeah, four years ago now, uh, I really started going into trying to look at those types of different things and kind of talking to my wife, my wife and I got married after college and we decided, okay, we want to try and start doing these hunts. And then I went on a mission trip. And then right after that, I, um, I got diagnosed with type one diabetes, which was a big, you know, throws a wrench and everything. So it was kind of a crazy, crazy experience for a little while. But while I was down with diabetes, I, uh, I discovered born and raised. Oh, and cool. when I found born and raised that, uh, that got me hooked. Yeah. That's awesome. That is neat, man. Sure. That was, was that, um, yeah. Was that pretty early on? Was that like the first land of the free series, do you know? Or? Yeah. So it was the first land of the free series that I saw. Yeah. So I read an article about just, you know, an awesome way to explore public land. And it was talking about the land of the free series. That's neat, man. That's really cool. So this hunt that we'll, we'll be talking about today from this past fall of 2020 was an elk hunt. And, you know, you kind of talked about, again, as I mentioned earlier, perseverance was such a critical aspect of the story. And we'll get into why that is the case for this hunt in particular. But I'm kind of curious before that is perseverance just been part of your elk hunting journey in general. So if you take 21 or sorry, take 2020 out of the occasion, um, just as a newer hunter and learning, how has perseverance been part of that prior to 2020, which we'll obviously talk about. Yeah. I mean, I've always been, I mean, that just kind of a theme of my life, you know, I just, I like a challenge. I don't know. Maybe I'm a glutton for punishment. I don't, I'm not sure, but I always like to uh, push things to the limit around where I grew up, you know, success rates weren't as high as other places. And most people just rifle hunted, but me being, I don't know the person I am, I wanted to always do archery hunting. So I archery hunted around here. I did, you know, different types of things and just always like to push through different challenges. Challenges have always been something that comes up and, you know, I'm raised in a Christian household, you know, God can get you through anything that you go through. So whenever you face a challenge in life, whether anything that comes up, it's, you know, an illness or a loss in a family or a loss of a job, no matter what it is, I've just always found that if you have God, you can find a way to get through it. And then if you have goals that you want to seek, you can always try to attain those goals. And no matter what, there's going to be an obstacle that comes in the way. And as long as you know what your goal is, you can't let those things get in the way because life's too short just to have different things that are coming up that are going to push you off mark. There's always going to be a reason not to do something, but you only have so many years where you can go and do the amazing things that this world has to offer. Yeah. Well, so kind of stop the podcast right there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good show, Matt. Thanks for doing this. <laughs> uh, all right. So let's go back to early 2020. It was uh, just as I was thinking about the story and the timeline, you know, early in 2020 and application season, I was like, God, that was pre COVID. It feels like forever ago, almost that we, you know, had normal life. Uh, but early 2020 
application season kind of start the story off initially this wasn't necessarily about your hunt but more about uh, a hunt you're gonna do with your brother right so pick up the story there yeah so you know my brother my dad and i we've always wanted to go on a big hunt together my dad fortunately you know it's put in for points for us for a long time and my brother he's eight years older than me so he's crewed quite a few points and so we decided this year our schedules all worked everything was coming together uh, I went on an elk hunt the previous year, so we felt like we kind of had a little bit more experience. So we were going to put in for one of his, you know, quote unquote, glory tags in Colorado. So since Colorado is a preference point state, we knew basically he had the opportunity to draw this tag based on the number of points that he had, uh, as long as point creep didn't just destroy us. Um, and so, yeah, pre-COVID, we're deciding, we're planning, we're saying, all right, it's time to put in, we're going to try and draw this tag. So that was, you know, Early January, we decided this plan in March, I think March, April frame time. Uh, we decide, okay, we put in, everybody puts in for these points or put, puts in for the tag. And then June rolls around and yeah, we're pumped up and excited because we end up drawing his tag. So he drew his tag. Now the planning really starts. So we start digging into the area. My dad's friend had actually had previous experience in the area, probably 10 years prior. So we got some waypoints from him and we start researching and then the big thing is we start you know getting ready physically because we we know it's a pretty steep unit Colorado is always high elevation so it was going to be a tough hunt as far as from us flatlanders I live in southwest Louisiana he lives in southeast Texas we don't have many mountains over here um, and so then we just start you know exercising working out planning everything that goes into it all the fun stuff right all looking at onyx maps and trying to figure out where we're going to camp, where we're going to hunt from, how we're going to hunt everything that we're going to go look at and, you know, shooting bows, everything that comes along with that. Yeah. So I'm curious what, like kind of logistically with it being you, your brother and your dad, how are you trying to tackle that hunt from like, say a camping perspective? So were you guys going to set up like a base camp and hunt from there or kind of what was the plan of attack? Yeah, so we were going to set up a base camp, and my brother and I were probably going to go. We were choosing different waypoints to walk into, and we were going to hike throughout the day. And my dad was going to go because there's quite a few roads in this unit. And so he was going to go to different ridges and maybe bugle, scout, you know, with a spot and scope, and maybe find some other opportunities, maybe find some other bulls that we haven't seen, things like that, while we were hunting in whatever area we thought was advantageous for that day. Yeah, that's cool, man. I, I kind of partially asked that question, knowing that your dad was part of the equation, obviously maybe not as capable uh, in his age. Uh, and that's a super smart way to kind of break things up where you're essentially divide and conquer almost in a way, especially early on in the hunt. Maybe when you're just trying to locate some bulls or see what hunting pressure is doing. Um, that's a, that'd be a solid strategy for sure. Yeah, that's what we were hoping. And my dad, he kind of told us, he was like, look, I, I've done it before, but I don't know if my knees are up to uh, going through the mountains at the same rate that y'all are going to go through the mountains. So he kind of volunteered for that duty. Yeah, that's cool. So June, July, things are cruising, plans are coming together, points are being picked out, training's happening, gear's probably getting acquired and dialed in. And then the story takes a big old change in August. What happens? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I think we were planning, if I remember right, we had planned to leave uh, September 18th or 17th is when we were planning to leave. And so, I mean, we're inside of a month, we're getting ready. And then August 25th, I want to say, you know, we start turning our eyes towards the Gulf, which, of course, June to October is your really big hurricane season around here. And 
Hurricane Laura hit August 27th, and it was a, you know, high category four hurricane, almost a category five hurricane, just destroyed the landscape of the area. I mean, it was complete decimation. I live in a pretty urban area around Lake Charles, Louisiana, and uh, we were without power until, I want to say we got it back September 15th, and that was early compared to most. Holy cow. Yeah, it was, wow. uh, it was pretty devastating. I mean, you had complete houses torn down, your buildings were torn down, the infrastructure was just completely decimated. So when that happened, obviously, we just we couldn't find a way to go. With everything that was going on here, we were too busy helping you know, the community, our family, our friends. There were so many things that were involved in this that we were like, there's no way we can, uh, we can pull this hunt off right now. There's just too much stuff that we have to do here that we have to take care of because these people have a need. Yeah. And not only people, I mean, we were very fortunate, like my house in a neighborhood, I only lost a privacy fence and I had shingle damage, which everybody with 150 mile an hour winds has <laughs> yeah. shingle damage to some extent. So did you guys have to evacuate when the storm hit and all that? Yeah. So actually we did, we evacuated to uh, Austin, Texas. So okay. it was quite a bit West. Yeah. What did, uh, what did you personally, I don't, I don't know, maybe you've been through many of these. Cause obviously, as you said, there's, there's a season to this and storms happen and hit parts of the South like that. But, uh, what did you learn from kind of like living through this living without power for that long, just like in a real practical level, I almost feel like your average hunter has a much better head start <laughs> dealing with that than the average Joe who doesn't maybe have like more gear experience, things like that. Just when it comes to alternatives for water, food, cooking, all that stuff. But I'm just kind of curious. Uh, we'll talk about all cunning, but what did you learn from kind of going through that storm? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So, you know, with everything going on around here, you want to get back, you want to take care of everything, but you just have a big, big, big curve of, okay, we've got to start damage control. And I think one of the big things from a hunter, not necessarily from a backcountry perspective, because most people would get a generator and then, yeah, you could filter water. That would be something that would have been nice you know, that's something that you have an advantage on. But more than that, you're just somebody that knows how to get things done. I mean, like, you know, taking down an elk is a daunting task as far as breaking it down and getting ready to take out of the woods. So coming back to a, you know, a ravaged area such as Lake Charles was at that time, it was almost overwhelming to say, okay, what do you do first? And so that was kind of the perspective of from being a hunter, from being somebody that has had to go through things in life okay, you just start with square one and then you have to, you know, keep working from there. So just pick a small task, start working it, then go on to the next thing. But the cool thing about this area was, you know, it was in the midst of the COVID crisis as well, but it was like COVID disappeared when August 27th happened. Everybody came back and everybody was just working to help each other. And it was kind of crazy seeing how that just, you know, it brought everybody together in such a time where everybody had been so isolated and separated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a good lesson, man. Um, I was going to say, like, for me being in Idaho, I hear, you know, you hear hurricanes and stuff on the news and you see pictures, but it's kind of like, I don't know, a a different world to me, right? I've never experienced that. And just, it's uh, interesting to kind of hear someone who's actually going through it. Oh, it's a, it's a pretty helpless feeling too. I remember the night the hurricane hit. I mean, I woke up and I saw the eye of the hurricane was over my neighborhood at the time. <laughs> so, and you don't, you know, there's powers out. There's no way to see anything. You no way to check if you have like, you know, a home camera, a ring, or whatever to even look. Uh-huh. There's no idea of what you're going to come back home to. That's crazy. So the unknown is just insane. Yeah, <laughs> that is wild. So, with you guys, obviously dealing with, as you mentioned, not only getting your own home in order, back up and running, but 
you guys were kind of staying and helping friends, family, the community, all that, which is awesome. But decide that this hunt can happen. And as you mentioned, this was a hunt that had been in the works for years from a preference point perspective, more than a decade. Uh, how did that work with Colorado? Was it an easy process to essentially turn in that tag to get costs refunded, to get points reinstated, just the logistics on that? Um, was that pretty simple? Uh, it was somewhat simple. So my brother reached out to Colorado Parks and Wildlife and said, look, we just had you know a natural disaster in the area. There's no way we're going to be able to make this hunt. And then they said, okay, you can, um, and this was after September 1st. So the season had already started. So it was kind of crazy from that perspective, especially with it being a draw tag. So he told them, okay, I have to turn it back in. And they had to review it with an upper manager that said, okay, yes, this is a natural disaster. But the only way you can still, I think it's in the Colorado rule book. I think if you turn it back after a certain date, you either say, okay, I get my points back or I can get my money back. Mm. So for my brother, he was like, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and eat the price of this tag and get my points back because I don't want to lose, you know, 17 years of my life. Yeah. Add that to the homeowner's insurance claim. <laughs> like, uh, I got another line item here. <laughs> oh, man. So that hunts off. Uh, obviously, we're going to talk about a hunt. The, the, a hunt happened. You made another plan, but was that like, immediate for you like okay this hunt's not going to happen september's out archery's out this is something you kind of were just thinking about kicking around let me find another way or instantly did you like no man i'm I'm still going to make an elk hunt happen here's how i'm going to start trying to figure that out i wouldn't say it was instant at first it was just uh you know we were kind of devastated losing the hunt losing all these plans something we look forward to not just this year but our whole lives we've been planning for this really big hunt you know, going out West, doing this together. Cause it's something we've never done all together. We've all had separate hunts, but just never been able to link up or something like this. So at first it was just still, okay, we're not going on the hunt. We just have to kind of move forward. And then I started talking with my wife and I was like, uh, for me, I'm lucky enough. I can just block off whatever. Well, I have three weeks of vacation. And so I can block off, you know, two or three weeks at a time. And uh, I started talking to my wife. I was like, I've still got these two weeks of vacation to burn what if I still tried to burn them later, say October? And she was like, I'm all for it. And she's completely on board. She's pretty awesome. So she's all game for me going out West and hunting because she likes the meat and things like that. So, uh, so once we kind of talked about it, she was like, do some kind of research. And so I started digging to Colorado over the counter kind of stuff and decided on a second rifle hunt. We figured that would be, you know, pre rut for whitetail season over here as well as still an opportunity to hunt elk in Colorado this year. So then I decided full in, I'm going to figure out that, which changes the game for everything from, you know, what kind of equipment you're taking, what kind of gear you're going to be wearing, what kind of weather you're going to be facing. Um, you know, even wearing Hunter Orange, something that I didn't have. We don't have to wear Hunter Orange in Texas, but, you know, out there for a rifle season, you have to wear Hunter Orange. So that added another element. Um, Logistically, I was going to be going by myself now because I know my brother couldn't swing these different time dates and neither could my dad. So it changed from a group hunt to a solo hunt. Uh, so then meal planning became totally different because now I'm not running from a base camp. I'm just going to be backpacking. Uh, so the game changed completely. And so then over the next month, while trying to still, you know, get everything back to a little bit of normalcy from the hurricane, I'm also planning everything I can to try and get ready for the hunt. Yeah, I mean, that goes back to, you know, what we started with and joked about ending with, of, you know, not making 
not letting excuses get in the way and taking advantage of time and opportunity. But I mean, as you just said, you're, you're literally recovering from a hurricane. All of your plans are changing. And in a matter of weeks, yes, you're going elk hunting, but as you said, it's a totally different place, a totally different season, a totally different weapon, a totally different approach, no partner now new area like you you had a million reasons to not even try to go but you didn't let that stop you which is awesome oh yeah i mean there's only so many years to go elk hunting so i figured i'd make the most of it because i could have a reason next year not to go so yeah there's always gonna be a reason to stop you but all you gotta do is find one reason to go finding excuses is not hard man i'm pretty good at it no doubt i think it's easy for all. <laughs> yeah. it's the same with working out right you can make oh. an excuse in the morning to I was gonna ask lay back earlier, in bed did you um, as far as getting in shape, working out, did you do anything unique, different that prepped you for the hunt? Uh, anything that you worked that, uh, you found worked well for you? Oh yeah, actually I did. So, I mean, I did get some hiking boots. I got some Kinetrex to kind of break in and in the process, we have a, a national park that does have some, you know, it's not really mountains, but there is elevation change of up and down over the course. And so what I would do is I would, uh, so, you know, we're deer hunters over here. We do have corn feeders, things like that. So I would take a 50 pound bag of corn, put it on the load shelf and go hike for mm. eight or 10 miles at a time. Gotcha. Yeah. That's as good as train as you can do. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was hoping. And then I would get on stair stepper when I could just to try and train those muscles, but you're still not training the downside. Right. So. Yeah, that's good. So we just talked about everything going on, all this changing, and it's literally happened in a matter of weeks and somewhere in there, you guys essentially had another storm come through. Is that right? Yeah. So, uh, after we're, um, we, you know, we, all of September goes on and, uh, we're fighting through everything. We finally get everything back to normalcy a little bit. You know, people have got electricity, people have got water, but everybody's got tarps on their roofs for the most part, things like that. And, uh, as we're going through all of those things, hurricane Delta, is in the Gulf at that time. And so the warm waters of the Gulf, they intensify every kind of storm that's coming off the coast of Africa. And so when it hit the Gulf at that time, it still hadn't quite cooled off yet. This is early October and uh, October 9th, hurricane Delta hits as a category two. Now for this one, it wasn't as severe and I'm stubborn. So I chose to stay and ride this one out at the house because we didn't have terrible damage from Laura. And uh, yeah, so then that throws another wrench and everything because people with damaged houses, even though it was only a category two, it was a much smaller hurricane because you've got so much damage already that uh, it damaged a lot more because everybody was already so exposed. Doesn't mm. take much you to rip a tarp do. off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> ripping a tarp off is a lot easier than ripping the shingles off. And half of the community was covered in, tar- in tarps. I mean, if you just looked, it was a sea of blue. And so that one kind of, and everything as far as they all, um, the community did a lot of temporary repairs just to, get electricity, get ele- get water back. So it was much easier for this storm to take out electricity again, take out water, all those types of things. But it was a much quicker recovery than the first one. But yeah, through another wrench in the plan where, because I work for a company that, you know, kind of helps supply, you know, fuel, things like that. And so we had to try and get our facility back up and running. And that kind of tied into where I was planning to leave. I think my departure date was originally planned for October 23rd and Delta hit on uh, October 9th. And so from that point on, once we kind of got the community back, I was working 12 hour days trying to just get work back to normal. And that ended up leaving. I think the last day was uh, I worked until yeah, six or no five that afternoon. And I ended up leaving and my plan was, okay, I'm going to go home 
I'm going to go to sleep as soon as I get home and then wake up at midnight to head out to Colorado. So we worked right up to the point where we had to go. So it was Jeez. pushing the clock for sure. Man. How, uh, how far of a drive is that for you where you were headed to from Colorado? Uh, so I think it ended up being 19 hour drive total. Yeah. Coming right off of busy weeks of work and storm. And that's a lot, man. Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty crazy, but I was, I don't know. I think whenever you're driving unfamiliar territory, you know, you're driving different roads and I chose to leave at midnight. So I drove through the dark for the first, you know, six or seven hours. But after that I was in the daylight, which kind of helped me stay awake, stay active, those types of things. Hmm. Headed into, you know, now essentially late October, um, in the mountains is obviously very different than anything in Louisiana or Texas. Were you a bit like intimidated or have concerns about being a later season hunt versus the September hunt that was originally planned? Um, different as you talked about, obviously even changes in gear. Like what were some of the specifics where it was like, I don't know, we're not going to be there September 17th. I'm going to be there October you know, 27th or whatever. Uh, Cause even though that's a month apart, that can be a pretty big difference in the mountains and a big difference from probably what you're used to in uh, Southern Louisiana. Oh yeah. It was a complete change. I mean, I was kind of worried as far as was I going to have the sufficient gear? So I knew I wanted to stay light and I have, you know, cold weather gear. It does get cold down here at times for, you know, December hunt, something like that. She'll get down in the, you know, lower thirties, upper twenties at times, but with hundred percent humidity, it kind of hits you a little different. Um, but the thing for me was I knew my layering system that I had at the time, I just had, you know, a base layer. I was going to have maybe, I think I had a midweight Merino and then I have a soft shell jacket that I was going to, I was what I was planning to take for our archery hunt. And so I don't have a puffy. Uh, I don't have, you know, I have some gloves, but they're not cold, cold weather gloves. Um, so those types of things I was pretty intimidated on, but I decided, you know what, I'm just going to tough it out and try and see what I can do with what I have and go elk hunting. So I don't know if that was just a dumb Once again, move. no more excuses. Exactly. And I was kind of hoping the plan, the way that I wanted to hunt was pretty active. So I was hoping that would kind of work in my favor. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, make a 19 hour drive solo, uh, get there and I guess pick up the story, man. Like day one, are you headed into an area that you know, you felt like you had a decent grasp of from e-scouting. Did you have a very specific plan of I'm starting here, I'm headed there or I'm making a loop or, you know, what was the really strategy uh, for the beginning of the hunt? And then how did that strategy play out once you got boots on the ground? Yeah. Um, so the first morning, my dad actually has hunted this area and we have a friend, Jerry, he lives in the area, but he doesn't hunt anymore. Um, but they have hunted the area probably 15 years ago which we know that doesn't mean anything for boots on the ground research, but they kind of gave me some waypoints of, okay, these are places that we have had success in the past. So I kind of picked a point and my plan was, okay, I'm going to go in one of these morning, the first morning, I'm going to get to the bottom of this mountain and I'm going to work or drainage. I'm going to work my way up the drainage using thermals to my advantage and just see what kind of elk sign I can find, because I don't know if elk are going to be in this area this time of year Second season art rifle in Colorado, you know, I don't know if they're more in a transition phase. Or are they still going to be in a late rut phase? I didn't know what to expect from that point. So I went ahead and brought a bugle tube and a, a cow call just in case. Um, yeah. And then so I get there 
I get dropped off that first day. I actually went to our friend Jerry's house the first night and uh, he drops me off at the trailhead and we talked, there was an old cattle trail that was supposed to turn and kind of go towards the meadow. It went off the main hiking trail and it was supposed to turn and take me to the bottom of this drainage where I would start hiking up through the woods. Well, you know, this is probably an hour before daylight. I'm walking through and I start looking at my maps because I feel like this, uh, this cattle trail that I'm on is not taking me the direction that I'm hoping to take. And so uh, as I'm hiking, I start, it's taking me further up the drainage instead of taking me back around to the bottom of the drainage. I don't know if I missed the cattle trail that I was supposed to be on or if it no longer exists, um, but I couldn't find that cattle trail. So I just decided, okay, I'm going to bomb off. And this cattle trail is cutting through oak brush. And so I just decided, okay, I'm going to just bomb straight down the side of the hill through the oak brush to get to the bottom to be where I want to be at daylight. So I just start pushing straight through oak brush for 10 or 15 minutes. I don't know. I felt kind of dumb doing that when I was sliding down the hill at times, pushing through oak brush at times. It was a little hairy at first to start the day. And in the process of that, I ended up losing my trekking poles. I guess the loop, the wrist loop on it, hooked a, um, hooked a branch or something and just yanked them out of my pack. And so I don't know, somebody may have found them one day or a bear's sitting next to them in the oak brush. Not sure where they're at at this point. <laughs> and then I, um, so finally it gets daylight and I finally ease around and make it to the bottom of this drainage where I wanted to work up. And man, it was just like a dream. This was something that I've wanted to do all my life. And when I get there, you know, it's kind of open, it's quiet. I don't, for me, I was fortunate. I picked an area, I guess, that there weren't many other hunters right there. And so it just felt like I was to myself walking up just this magnificent face. Every place, you know, every time I take a step, every pop I hear, I'm looking over expecting to see elk. It was just a beautiful, you know, it's what you go to the mountains for. It's just everything you could dream of, of seeing the sights, the smells, you know, you've got lodgepole pine in there. You've got, you know, these big ravines that are coming off to the side. It's a cool morning with the sun coming up. It was perfect weather. I think it was like, what was it? 37 degrees. I mean, you couldn't have asked for better weather for a first day of a hunt and just beautiful weather, beautiful country. And, you know, I just started that day hiking up the mountain, working thermals in my favor, just slipping along, hoping to see either maybe elk coming down to bed or finding sign of where elk would be later in the day that I could hunt and try to figure out a way or a tactic to hunt those elk that I find. So that was kind of how the first morning started for me. Yeah. So it sounds like you you had a good mix probably of wanting to cover ground strategically, you know, and locate elk, locate sign. How do you, especially going into a new area, different season you haven't hunted before kind of balance like the pace of that. Cause some guys I feel, you know, maybe you go too aggressive and blow elk out. Some guys are too cautious. And obviously this even changes a lot from, September when they're rutting and they're vocal and easier to locate into now kind of a post rut phase where they're not potentially going to be as vocal um, and things like that. So I'm just kind of curious, how did you feel that out? Um, or what was your mindset going into it? I know you talked about covering ground, using wind, all good stuff, but was optics and glassing and all that part of the equation as well, or just did the country not lead itself to that style of hunting? Um, where I was hunting, so I guess I could glass quite a bit once I got up to the top of the point, but working up the drainage was pretty heavily timbered, so there wasn't a lot of glassing going on. It was more just still hunting kind of through the woods, slowly working my way up methodically, you know, take a few steps, pay attention to your surroundings, listen for anything that may be 
movement of, you know, an animal of some sort, because elk are pretty loud, hopefully. And, uh, you know, just taking it one step at a time, working my way slowly up the mountain, kind of how I have for white-tailed deer all my life, you know, they're pretty skittish over here. So we've had to, we always have to take precautions as far as sound movement to be as still as possible. So slowly working up the mountain, I kind of used the tactics I'd had from years of whitetail hunting and tried to use that to my advantage for an elk hunt. And so as I was working up the hill, I would look for maybe there's beds, maybe there is some sign of scat or, you know, tracks somewhere along the line, but there was quite a bit of straw. And my goal was to make it, you know, there was going to be a saddle right before I got to the top of this mountain. And I've read and I've kind of heard that these saddles are going to be these travel points throughout the day. So my goal was to try and get to this saddle before the thermal switched. And maybe I could find some transitioning elk or at least find some trails, find some sign of, okay, this is the direction they're working. At some point during the day or night, they're moving through this area. So that was kind of what my thought process was going into it was make it to the saddle slowly. And then from there, kind of assess what I found and make a plan from there. Yeah. Solid. Good plan. Yeah. I like that you were like using a skill set that you already had, right? You weren't trying to like mm-hmm. relearn how to elk. You're like, all right, I've got this skill set. Let's take advantage of it here and just kind of adapt it to the elk woods. I think that's, that was a smart plan. Yeah. So how did day one treat you? Did you get into sign elk? Uh, you're working your way up and what did the day bring for you? Not much. It was, uh, I guess you could <laughs> say it was a good day and a bad day because I found where the elk weren't. So, uh, yeah, I went through, I went up that hill. I went to the saddle. I really didn't find any sign in the saddle. Uh, I worked across a pretty big field of deadfall, I guess Colorado's land of deadfall, but I worked across this pretty big field of deadfall. And uh, when I got across it, I found an elk trail that had two sets of tracks. It looked like a larger set and a smaller set. So my assumption was, okay, a cow and a calf, which does me no good because an over-the-counter second season rifle is bull only. So kind of saw that and I went, there was quite a few fingers that I could work my way up. So I got on top of the ridge and glassed what I could glass during the day. And then I slowly worked down each set, just trying to find any kind of sign of beds any kind of sign of, you know, anything that would indicate that there's other elk in here that I may be able to hunt at this elevation, at this location during this type of season. And I ended up covering a little over 10 miles that day and found just that one set of tracks. So it was a, it was an amazing day, but it was a learning day for me. Yeah. So as you said, you checked off the box of where the elk aren't, (laughs) Um, which is valid, man. I've, definitely been there, done that. And it helps narrow things down. I know you said, uh, in your story, it sent over that, you know, after this day, you essentially looked for a new area and you specifically said you chose an area that looked particularly steep and away from trails, hoping to find, uh, sanctuary areas that elk are hiding in during the post rut phase, which again, smart stuff, you know, elk, a lot of times have been pressured through, archery season through first rifle season at this point uh and they just kind of want to hunker down not only get away from pressure but kind of recover weather's getting colder they're kind of trying to conserve energy you know and at the same time pack on food so uh just highlight in there that once again the thinking seems right on in terms of looking for those pockets of sanctuary where they're essentially going to be hiding out a bit yeah, uh, thank you. But that wasn't my thought process. So I kind of looked at, you know, I tried to do as much research as I could leading up to this hunt in the short amount of time I had. But, you know, I looked to Randy Newberg has those five seasons of elk hunting. 
And that's kind of where I went from, you know, he has that preseason and he has the pre-rut, peak rut, post-rut, and then the late season. And so I knew from kind of watching that that they should be, if they're not in a, po- in a post-rut, you know, maybe late-rut season, then they're going to be in that post-rut sanctuary time. And that was kind of my hope that, okay, I need to find and refocus because the place I was wasn't terribly steep. It wasn't terribly difficult to access. Uh, so maybe this isn't a place where I'm going to find what I need to hunt because I can't just hunt cows and calves. I have to hunt bulls in this hunt. So maybe I need to change my focus to these areas that aren't as appealing to walk through. <laughs> Yeah. Did you have those areas identified before you headed up for the hunt or was this kind of like, okay, after day one, I need to find a new spot. Now let me figure out where are these areas, um, that you can go to. So, yeah, I actually did pick out some of these areas as just because I knew I was looking at the topo maps and I could see that these are just awful areas to go to. And I also knew that these were roadless areas and so that was kind of something that stuck out to me of okay maybe people don't want to go in there because they're gonna have to walk and they're gonna have to pack something out if they do shoot it so I was hoping okay maybe this will be an area that'll be a little less crowded knowing how crowded Colorado can get in a you know ripes over-the-counter rifle season um so I picked some of these up but my plan originally was uh before I even talked to our friend that lived out there my plan was just going to be I would backpack to a point and then work my way across to the area that I ended up hunting in day two but he was like man after talking to him someone who's experienced elk hunting in the past he was like look hike back if you don't find anything that first day use it as a scout day and we could drive around and you could have a much quicker way to get to that side and hunt a completely different area where maybe okay now you find elk and if you don't find there maybe go another you know, it, it was 12 miles as a crow flies, but 30 miles as a, you know, on a road. So we had to drive quite a ways around a mountain range. Uh, and then if you don't find them there, we can pick a new spot, but don't get so fixated in an area that it holds you down to a place without elk. Mm. Yeah. So day two, that's the plan. You're headed to this new spot into the stuff you, uh, the sanctuary that you hope is a sanctuary for the elk. That, that's where you head. Yeah, that's kind of where we go. And, you know, something I didn't mention that was really uh, important on this hunt, it had been, I mean, I think all of the West had a pretty big drought. And um, day one, I didn't find any water. And that was something that kind of stuck out to me. I did buy a few gallons of water and I loaded up my uh, bladder. And that's something I'm going to mention later about having a bladder on a second rifle hunt as opposed to an archery hunt. But uh, I, I filled up my bladder and I used all my three liters that first day hiking. So I had no other water left and I found no water anywhere. So that to me was like, okay, what do elk need? Food, shelter, water, right? And so maybe they're not going to be in this area. So hopefully I can find water on day two. Yeah. I will say that from what I experienced last September in Colorado, it was by far and away the driest conditions I've ever seen. I don't doubt that one bit because it was awful yeah. as far as the water concern. Yeah. Hit that but point yeah. on the bladder real quick. You mentioned about using a bladder and archery versus second rifle. Oh yeah. So, uh, well, I mean, using a bladder in archery season, you're not really going to hit those freezing temperatures, but we're going to talk about a little bit of snowstorm hit and, uh, yeah, my, uh, my bladder froze up on me. So that was nice having to fight <laughs> that battle. At least the, uh, the tube coming out froze whenever I was hiking. So learn that experience. Didn't have an algae or a blender, a blender bottle, something like that with me. So, yeah. You know, yeah. If you're in those conditions, I mean, you can try and insulate it and do things like that, but I found nothing better than just essentially blowing that water back through so that your tube is only air. Uh, and eventually your, the bladder itself can freeze in the pack, but it definitely takes quite a bit longer. 
Yeah, that was that was a mistake on my part for sure. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. So day two, headed in towards the sanctuary, pick up the hunt. And uh, I know you you found some water and eventually you found some elk. So pick up the story. Yeah. So day two, I chose, I mean, it was a pretty steep area. So it was a place that you really didn't want to walk up, but I kind of used the same plan that I had on day one of, okay, I'm going to work up the drainage with the thermals in my face and try to get to the head of the drainage by lunch or by, you know, a time when the thermal switch and then have a small snack because I brought quite a few meals that I packed with me and uh, get a snack and then work down another drainage if I didn't find anything in that one. So first morning I start, I walk up and this one's a little bit more glassable. It seemed like it was an area that had a burn in the past and uh, I could glass in the timber. I could see the, you know, the other side of the drainage from me. I could glass as I worked my way up. And so I would work up for, you know, about 30 minutes, find a good glassing spot where there was another finger glass into this next little hole And then once I didn't see anything in there, I would continue working my way up slowly. And this is, you know, I'm side hilling across something that I felt like I could just reach out and touch the ground the whole time. It was a pretty steep place. And it was because of the burn, I guess, had a ton of deadfall. So that was a good sign for me. At least I felt it was. I felt like people weren't going to want to walk in here because it was a pain. It was painstaking every way. So I think the head of the drainage was only two miles and it took me three and a half hours to work my way up there. So it was a pretty treacherous walk, or at least I felt so for a guy coming from a flatland, you know. But uh, so about halfway up the drainage, uh, I heard that wonderful sound. I heard water working through a spring. And so I kind of walked over and found a little water. And so about, oh, I want to say it was maybe 830 in the morning. I found, you know, some water and I went down and I walked over to this little spring and there's tracks everywhere. So there's obviously some elk in this area there's fresh sun and this is the thing for me so I have water so I had a filter filled up all my water right there and I said okay I'm going to try and make it another you know a third of the way up this drainage to see if I can go ahead and get my breakfast in you know working with the diabetic stuff that throws another kink in it I don't want to get my blood sugar too low so I have to make sure I eat along the way up those types of things Um, I always keep some gummy bears with me just to kind of help my sugar climb and I can watch my blood sugar on my phone to see if it's too high or too low or something like that. And so my thought was, okay, once I get up here, my sugar's kind of starting to go down. So I need to stop, have a snack of some sort. I'll just get up to this next little knoll, look over and uh, see what I have to find. So I leave this little area where there's a spring and I keep working my way up and I top the hill where I'm like, okay, I'll probably pretty close to where I'll stop and sit down and take a break. And as I do, I just see that orange that we always want to see, right? That kind of shade of orange of elk on the mountain. And I just hit the ground like a rock, man. I just fell because I was exposed. I was on this field in the wide open and blaze orange. So I felt like I still got like a sore thumb. So I just fell to the ground. Uh, and then, yeah, there were two elk on the side of this hill. It was pretty awesome. I, uh, I found two elk right there and started glassing at that point, trying to figure out, okay, are they bulls? Are they legal bulls? Do they have, you know, a five-inch brow tine, uh, something like that? Do they have uh, – anything that can make them a huntable bull or huntable elk. And is there a way to stalk them? So that was kind of how day one started for me. It was pretty eventful, pretty fast. Once I got up to the place where I was wanting to be. So it's kind of rewarding to see, okay, there are elk in here, but it was in a place that I knew was going to be terrible. If I did have success bringing them out. Yeah. So you, did you determine then a little bit of time, get to take a look at them? They were legal. Yeah. So I, um, I started glassing with my binoculars for a bit and I saw, there was two bulls actually is what it turned out being. And there was a, a smaller bull who had, you know, I could see four points on one side. I said, okay, he's legal. And then a larger bull that was a five by five 
that was with him. But the problem was they were almost at the head of this basin and the head of the basin was just completely dark timber. And so they were working their way kind of away from me, slowly back and forth, just feeding on the side of this hill. And they were working towards this basin. And I knew from looking at the topo maps, looking at Onyx, I was like, if they get off this side, they're going to go into that dark timber and I'm never going to see them again. And my chances of getting them out of there this season, I know they're probably not going to respond to calling much. They're probably not going to want to see anybody. And if my thermal switch, I'm done for. And so this is about, you know, 1030 in the morning, I'm working my way up. And so I say, okay, I've got to make a move right here. And so I kind of ease up. I pull my rangefinder out at first. They were, ah, what were they? Three, I want to say they were around 370, somewhere around there. And I was like, that's kind of the farther end of my range. But I was like, okay, I've practiced some around these ranges. I'm going to try and take a chance, but I don't have a, a BDC reticle or a mill dot reticle or a turret. I just shoot holdovers with my loophole scope that I have right now. And so I was like, okay, I need to find a steady rest. I need to find a way to get over to these elk. And so I put my rangefinder down, I get my rifle off my pack and uh, I turn around and the elk are gone. I'm like, what in the world? They just disappear. How do these huge animals just disappear in the middle of the timber? And so I'm like sitting there looking, sitting there glassing around and I don't see them. So after about five minutes, I'm like, I'm going to ease further. Maybe there's, they've moved to a position where I can't see them from where I'm located. So I start walking slowly up, just easing with my rifle in my hand and my, you know, I'm just kind of watching and I've got a range finder around my neck and uh, I've got my pack in my other hand because my goal was I was going to lay down and uh, prone shoot, you shoot across the pack because I don't have a bipod on my rifle. Um, so I was going to use that as my stability. And then, so after another, you know, 20 yards of movement, I finally do locate them. They had moved behind some trees for working further away from me, but I moved up quite a bit. Uh, and I found them as they were just, they were close to easing off of the edge. And so I find the two bulls, I range them again. They're right at 370. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to take my time. I'm going to focus on this. I'm going to make a good shot. And so I finally, I get on my pack and it's too low. I can't get it. The pack's not high enough, but luckily there's enough deadfall around. I find a log that, uh, you know, I find a log that I can get on that gives me a pretty sturdy rest. I felt pretty comfortable with my rest at that time. And so I get on the larger of the two bulls and I kind of get settled in on him and he moves to where there's a pine limb that covers everything from his head to just about his ham. And so his whole vitals are completely covered. So I'm like, okay, I've got to wait for him to move. And uh, so I'm sitting there waiting for him to move and he turns and goes straight away and goes off into the dark timber where I didn't want him to go. So I'm like, man, well, for me, I'm not too picky. I was just there after any legal elk. And so the other bull stepped out in the opening just to the right. So they were looking uphill. So yeah, they were standing, I guess, right to left looking uphill. And uh, so whenever I'm standing on this hill, I see that one. I'm like, okay, I'm going to take a shot. So I kind of hold where I think I need to hold. I take my deep breath. I breathe out like I've done, you know, millions of times before on deer and hogs and things like that. And I just take my shot. And when I shoot, he kind of hunches up and, you know, previous experience, kind of what we talked about earlier, uh, just from whitetail hunting, he hunched up almost like a gut shot. And that worried me. So I watched him turn and go into the timber. I know I've got a hit, but then I don't realize anything else. And then uh, I stand up, kind of get some things together after watching. He doesn't come out in the timber to the right. He doesn't, didn't seem like he went back. He doesn't seem to come out anywhere. So I'm like, okay, I need to go investigate after I wait about 10 minutes. And I stand up and it hits me. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's a 20 mile an hour crosswind 
that I didn't even think about. I was just so you like, couldn't, just you couldn't draw. feel that from your, your shooting position, essentially you kind of couldn't, you kind of sheltered from that wind. No, I think I could feel it. I think I was just too focused on the elk themselves and not losing them and trying to make a good shot that I didn't even think about the wind at that time. Cause that's something that really doesn't come into play down here. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the thing for me. I didn't even think about it. And then afterwards it was like, I kind of calmed down. The adrenaline went out and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I didn't think about it at all. So I knew, you know, I shoot a uh, 30 six. I think it was, I was shooting a 165 grain bullet. I knew it was going to have a pretty good bit of movement at that distance. I was like, man, I know I made a poor shot on this bull. And so I said, okay, I'm going to slowly work my way over that to that, uh, to where I shot the elk. And so I have to go down and up a drainage. And when I come up this drainage, um, I'm probably about 40 yards from where I shot. And so I'm slowly working my way in there, just sick at my stomach, knowing that I made a poor shot and knowing that I, I want to do the animal right. I want to, not leave a wounded animal. I want to harvest it cleanly. I want to have success on the hunt, but more importantly, I want to do the animal right. I don't want to let it suffer. And uh, so I'm slowly easing my way up and I can see through the timber kind of to my right. uh, I can see what looks like just a patch of hair just through a couple of trees. It just looks different than all the trees, you know, as far as bark, it was dark colored, but it wasn't quite the same. I could almost look like ruffled. And this was probably about 40 yards away. And about that time, it jumps up and runs across in front of me at 40 yards. And I don't know if instinct took over or what, but I fired another shot right in the shoulder and he dropped right there. So then it was just, you know, this flood of emotions of relief of, okay, bull down. And oh my gosh, now I've got a bull down in the middle of the mountains. I've got to get it out of this steep deadfall area. And on top of it all, to top it all off, there's supposed to be a, a snowstorm that blows in that afternoon. That's kind of where we got to for that, but it was an amazing experience. And, you know, it was just something that kind of felt, okay, you've got uh, success, but now the real work is going to start, right? The hunt's not over just because the bull's down. Mm-hmm. And you're solo. So you have that going for you. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Had another level of fun to it, but I think uh, I was excited about that part at first. I don't know if naive or what, but yeah. by the end I was not excited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. That's good. You you had mentioned you had gone on an elk hunt the year prior. Were you successful? Was this the first elk that you were going to break down? No. So this we were successful. So I went with my dad. So the year prior, I was actually going to go on a solo archery hunt. And uh, last minute, my dad, you know, he still goes on, or he had been going on that at same elk hunt with buddies, private land. And uh, he's been really just, he was like, man, you ought to come with me. And for me, I knew I wanted to go do a little movement around. And I started looking on maps and there were 80 acres of private, of public that uh that bordered this private land that they were going to hunt and so finally after talking i was like i only have so many years and in 30 years i'm going to miss you know not being able to hunt with my dad and not being able to have those memories so i think for me i was like i need to take advantage of the opportunity i have and go hunt with my dad and so i went on an archery hunt with him and in that 80 acres we ended up yeah we harvested a, a cow elk we were working up an abandoned logging road and um as we were easing our way up we just saw this puff of fog and there was a cow that was staring straight at us at like 30 yards. And, uh, I slowly just eased the arrow out of the quiver and she stared long enough for me to just draw back no range or anything. And I shot and ended up harvesting a cow last year. So this wasn't my first elk that I'd broken down. Gotcha. All right. 
So yeah, man, how does it go? I mean, solo, it's work, elk are big, holding legs, things like that. Sounds like you had some experience on elk and plenty of deer in the past, but uh, essentially able to get the bull and game bags and all that pretty okay. Yeah, it wasn't terrible. Uh, I did, you know, I have a couple of knives. I have a, uh, you know, fixed blade, serrated blade knife that I kind of use for getting through the hide and things like that, that are pretty tough, which the hide was very similar to that of a feral hog, pretty large feral hogs around here similar in that way. So it seemed like I was good on that side. And then once I got it off, it was just taking it apart as I've done with lots of smaller game. It was a little different, you know, flipping the elk by myself. I would, you know, to get the ham off, I decided I'd work from the back up. I took that ham off first and I would have to hold it on my shoulder, make sure it's not hitting the ground. And then uh, I would lay a game bag out, set it on top of the game bag. And then, um, so the gap didn't really work. So then I ended up having to, when I take one off, I'd set it on a clean log and then ease the game bag over the end. And then once I did that, I could pick the game bag up and kind of cinch everything down. But uh, yeah, it really wasn't terrible uh, getting everything out. Elk are huge animals and it was a great experience, but it wasn't the worst thing that I've been through. The next part <laughs> where it got pretty bad. Yeah. So in terms of packing out, uh, we'll get to it. But it, you mentioned up front, you're going to do like a leapfrog strategy, uh, which I think is really smart, especially solo. And we've talked about that a couple of times, but uh, for you was, I guess, how was that on your radar and why was that the, the initial plan for you personally? That was from listening to y'all's podcasts. I mean, I've kind of listened to people talk about, you know, is it better to just take a load completely out or is it better to kind of work your way and get one, one place and then go back and get the next part. And so my thought was, and from listening to y'all, it sounded like a much better plan to go, okay, I'm going to take a lighter half, take it halfway, come back get the next one go rest there and then work the rest of the way out and kind of just leapfrog all the way down till I got to my truck. And so that was just from listening to podcasts on here, listen to other people's experiences on here, just find out what was going to be the work in the best. Cause I had never experienced anything like this as far as having to pack something out. Normally around here, we have to drag an animal, you know, 150, 200 yards to get to where a four wheeler can get to it or something like that, but you're never packing something out miles. So it's a completely different game changer. Yeah. So you had this leapfrog strategy, but uh, essentially <laughs> it's not how you packed out the elk. <laughs> Why is that? Not. So the dead ball was pretty terrible. And so I don't know why I thought it. I was like, oh, the bottom of the drainage, rather than, you know, all the way up, I worked side healing through the dead ball, things like that. I was like, oh, the bottom's going to be a lot more open. Well, that was a completely wrong decision. Apparently, whenever dead fall breaks, it's all going to go down to the bottom. That's how gravity works, right? Everything's going to go down. So uh, the bottom of that drainage was just full of logs. You know, I was balance beaming across log after log, working my way down. And as I'm doing this, I've got a, uh, a pretty big snowstorm that's supposed to be blowing in that afternoon. So it's getting, it starts to snow, but it's not quite cool enough that it's sticking. So it starts to melt. And so then every log that I'm walking on is slick. Uh, I don't have my trekking poles anymore. Those are still with whatever bears has them in the oak brush from day one. Uh, so I'm just you know, slowly working my way down and moving each piece of meat, trying to be as careful as possible. So I didn't want to take uh, too large a load. So I didn't hurt myself knowing that I really didn't have, I didn't have any service and I don't for some reason I think it's going to be a new investment for me this year is uh, I didn't have an in reach or anything like that where I could reach somebody. Uh, that was probably a poor decision on my part from a safety perspective. But so I was slowly working my way out, getting each one there. And then, the snow started getting heavier and heavier and nightfall was coming. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to hang everything. It's getting colder. It's supposed to snow tonight. I'm not worried about the meat. So I hung the meat and went out that night. 
And so after going out that night, I, uh, I worked my way out that whole drainage, you know, finally got there. It was just after dark when I got out and, um, I called my dad, you know, told him I was successful, sent him the pictures, told him what happened. And he was like, you know, you ought to start looking to see if there's something that you're missing. And I started looking on the maps and it looked like there was this abandoned trail. It wasn't even a marked trail on the, uh, on Onyx, but it was just a, uh, you could see in the tree line that it looked like there was some kind of an old trail that was there. And so he talked about it one time that he had tried to uh, take an elk out on a snow sled. And so I was like, you know, that's not a terrible idea. So the next morning, that's my idea. I'm going to go try and pull an elk out with a, uh, a cheap snow sled. So I run to Walmart. As soon as I wake up the next morning, I buy a $30 snow sled. And uh, my dad's friend, Jerry, said that he wanted to accompany me. So he said, look, I want to come up there, even though he, he's older. He said, I want to come up there and at least be with you because I didn't like that you didn't have an in-reach. I didn't like that you didn't have anything to contact somebody. I don't want you to get hurt in there by yourself. So our plan is to work up this trail and it's not going to be as steep. It looks like going up this trail. Uh, and then once I get over there, I can shuttle everything from this steep drainage and get it up to the snow sled and maybe I can pull it out. So next morning comes, I get the snow sled and things kind of go pretty smooth. I work my way up. I slowly pull everything up there. The sled, you know, it was easy to pull. I just tied it to my pack and just let it pull behind me and got up there and got to uh, where I'd marked my waypoint where my stuff was down in the drainage. And it was a pretty steep drainage to say the least. I know um, I kind of talked about it a little bit, but so now we have another element. It snowed, I think, six inches that night. So we had six inches of snow on the ground going up this hill. And so going down into this drainage of deadfall, you've got snow covered on everything. And that was something that gear related, uh, I didn't have, but my friend Jerry, he actually had some, some cheap crampons, I guess you would call them. They kind of have a rubber top that you can just throw around your boot. And, uh, he brought those just in case. And I said, look, I'll go ahead and take those to go down. And that was a game changer. I think that's something that if you're going to hunt a late season, any kind of a snow hunt, that's just something to have in your pocket. That's too cheap not to take with you. So I got up to the hill. We, the trail did actually come around to the edge of this drainage. And so where I could just bomb off and go down and get my elk. So for the next hour, once we got up there, we got up there about noon after we hiked up this trail because the trail was quite a bit longer than going straight up the drainage, but it was a lot easier trek, right? I mean, you're on a trail the whole way. You're kind of just walking up. It's not nearly as steep. You're not stepping over deadfall. I learned there's a big difference between walking through the woods and walking on a trail. So I get to the top and decide okay Jerry kind of stayed behind he was working his way up a little slower than I was and so I started shuttling all the meat up to the sled and so by the time he got there I just shuttled almost everything I think I had to shuttle one more shoulder and I've decided to bone out the shoulder since I was shuttling it because originally I wanted to keep everything bone on because I thought that would give me that structure on my load shelf and so I wanted to keep the bone on but now that I knew I was going to have the sled I decided okay I can go ahead and bone out these shoulders that will save me a lot as far as uh as far as weight, whenever I'm pulling this thing down the hill. And um, so we get everything up to the sled, kind of get it tied down, and we start working our way out. And so we start working our way out probably around one o'clock. And that's when I realized my, uh, my bladder tube was frozen. And so I no longer had any water. I guess I could uh, scoop some snow up and uh, let it melt because I did have a bottle that day, but it wasn't just a great decision. And then, uh, so from there, we start working our way down the mountain and as we work our way down the mountain, we probably get ooh, almost halfway and the snow is melting as we're moving down the mountain. 
and it melts and turns to mud. And so we were moving. I mean, it was smooth sailing for the first probably mile, you know, mile and a half that we were working down this hill. I was, I'd walk for, you know, uh, 30, 45 seconds, take a breather, pulling the sled. And then I would just go ahead and, okay, we're going to pull it for another 30, 45 seconds. Then we'll stop, take a breather. Cause we were at, um, a little over 10,000 feet. So elevation was pretty high. A uh, little bit of altitude difference for me. I wasn't prepared for it. That's something I don't think there's any way to prepare for it just other than being in the mountains. So I would walk 30 or 45 seconds, take a breather, walk 30, 45 seconds, take a breather. And then we got to a point where the snow melted and apparently wet snow or wet mud does not want to act like snow at all. And so then it became sled was like sandpaper pulling across that thing. <laughs> did so you stick started. with it or did you end up putting this on the pack and hiking out? So it was still felt like it was better because we were working our way downhill the entire way. So I was like, we have okay. gravity on our side. It still might be easier just to go ahead and pull the rest of the way with the sled. So I stuck with the sled the whole way, but it was not as smooth as sailing. We ended up making it out to the truck at about six o'clock. Wow. That evening. But we got to the truck. We had a pretty successful hunt and I had all my meat there with me. So it was a, a blast of a hunt and it was a wonderful experience, but a lot, a lot of lessons learned. Yeah, that's cool, man. You had to have been smoked after pulling the sled through all that. Oh, yeah. So we got out and uh, first thing I did, I said, we're going to run to Wendy's and we're going to get two huge burgers. Heck yeah. Surprise <laughs> is celebratory and just uh, chow down. So <laughs> well, that's that was awesome, kind of what we did that evening. Yeah. Such a cool story. It's uh, as we've talked about, like there's a million excuses and I hope if anything, yeah, guys pick up some hunting tips from this and lessons learned because there's plenty of that in the story, but just the encouragement to get out and make things like this happen um, and not like excuses be excuses, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's always going to be the reason not to go. You can say, oh, you know, it's financially, it's going to be tough this year or, you know, there's something else that's going on that you may not want to leave for, but there's always going to be a reason to say no. But one day you're going to look back and say, why didn't I go? And I wish I had. And so I figured I would rather take those chances and tough out whatever situation comes before me instead of wishing I had and never doing it. Hmm. It's a great way to cap it. Let me ask you one final question that uh, may or may not have a clean answer, but anything we didn't cover that just like sticks out in your mind is something you learned on this trip that we didn't cover. Uh, let me see for anything I didn't cover. I think we hit a lot of my highlights of what stuck out to me. I know it's good to have friends. I know, you know, having those crampons, that was a key, something that I would say, uh, something I didn't cover. Yeah. So I did bring a little bit of a bone saw. So I just did a skull cap, right. For this bull, because obviously I wasn't worried about, uh, bringing anything big back. I didn't really care about the horns, just had to have them as far as part, part of proof of sex. Um, and proof that it was a legal bull, but uh, having a good saw for doing a skull cap would be uh, something that's advantageous because I had just an old limb saw that I brought with me in my pack and it was a, a painstaking process. It was quite a bit of work just sitting there sawing on one side and sawing on the other to try and get the skull cap off for getting the antlers out. Yeah, cool. That's something to make sure, but not something too heavy because I that was my whole goal, right? I didn't want to, I was trying to count ounces a little bit. Yeah, got it. Awesome. Well, Matt, congrats, man. It's, uh, it's cool that you pushed through everything and made it happen and uh, wish you nothing but success on future hunts and really appreciate you taking the time to share the story with us. Yeah, man. Appreciate it. I really appreciate it, guys. And I, I hope you all had a great day and I hope you all have a good season. Looks like it's going to be a fun season for y'all. 
Well, that's a wrap, guys. I hope that gets you fired up for your upcoming hunts. I know it has for me. As always, stay in touch with us and let us know how it goes. You can enter that Exo Experience contest at exomountgear.com forward slash experience, or you can send us your story, questions, comments, or feedback for the show directly by emailing podcast at exomountgear.com. Enjoy all the time that you get to experience the backcountry this fall and hope to talk to you soon.